0: Hello all, my name is Nick Kane, and this is the Sports Map podcast where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. It's great to be back bringing you another episode after a little bit of a spell in recent months and we're super excited to have our latest guest in Christian Thorberg for today's show and we're going to chat a range of topics around sports physiotherapy with a greater emphasis on sort of his main areas being the hip and groin. Now we have a couple of brilliant courses coming up in 2021 here at the Sports Map. We've got the Athletic Groin Pain Symposium in Sydney with the likes of Wallace, Mosler, Wallen, Saunders, Paula Charlton. We still have another presenter to be announced to that list and those tickets are selling quickly already in Sydney. Uh, and later that month of October, we're heading up to the Gold Coast for the Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport which has been really popular to date as well. So come and join us for a bit of shoulder and elbow PD and hopefully a nice early morning surf along the uh, lovely coast of the Gold Coast there. We do have a massive announcement coming soon around a brand new event that will be held in Melbourne in March 2022. Uh, This will be the biggest and the best that we've done so far. So really looking forward to uh, letting you all know what that one is. But our uh, lips are sealed at the moment and it won't be too far away until you hear what that is all about and who's talking. Of course, plenty of other info over at the website, such as our masterclass videos with uh, one that was quite delayed but is almost coming on the ACL, and also some fantastic new blog pieces, especially one recently around um, T-junction injuries of the biceps femoris, so some, some great info there that's free and accessible for all in our blog section on the website. Now, as mentioned, uh, we are welcoming Christian Thorberg to today's podcast, and Christian's a very well-renowned sports physiotherapist and researcher, he's an associate professor at the Copenhagen University, and he's a specialist in sports physical therapy since 2004, with more than 20 years of clinical experience within the Sports and Orthopaedic Injury Prevention Assessment and Treatment. He's published more than 145 peer-reviewed articles and 25 book chapters. Now, I've been really keen to get Christian on this podcast for for some time, and just to sort of hear hear his views and thoughts in in real time rather than over uh, the social media stream. So, I hope you'll enjoy. Welcome, Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now it's uh, it's fantastic to have you on, and we've heard you on a few different podcasts, and we're going to sort of see if we can delve into a few different areas uh, that you talk, that you have spoken about, but also what you haven't spoken about. But before we do that, uh, it would be great just to Let us know what you're doing work-wise at the moment Um, and yeah, give us a bit of a background there.
1: So my background, I'm trained as a physiotherapist and I actually did my master's in in sports physio in in Melbourne at Melbourne University and then went back to Denmark and did uh, my PhD at Copenhagen University and I've been working in research um, for the last, I would say, around 15 years and I also still work clinically. And, but my research position now is I'm a professor at Copenhagen University, um, and I, I'm actually sort of located in a, um, in an orthopedic department. Uh, so what we do there is, is basically trying to coordinate uh, surgical and non-surgical care of, of people with musculoskeletal pain, but it's the surgical care is mainly arthroscopy um from our department and so it's specialized within the area of what you could call sports orthopedics really Uh, so that's that's my job at the moment i oversee uh, a lot of projects and in the department um we have so so this whole idea of trying to have a better coordination of of surgical and non-surgical care is definitely one of the main aims of my professorship uh trying to understand when when surgery is indicated and needed and also when certainly when it's not needed um, one of the other things we do which is more sort of um, in the field or so to say is we have a lot of interest in sports injury prevention everything from primary prevention to secondary prevention and uh, i think the last thing that i'm involved with at the moment is and i've been involved with that since i started my PhD, is trying to develop new methods for measuring relevant things in sports medicine so the development of HAGOs, for instance is, is, is an example of that but we also have worked a lot with handheld dynamometry um different measures of, of um, related to uh, trying to measure adherence when people exercise in different interventions and also specific innovations sort of um, things you can put on your shoes to try and avoid twisting your ankle so and, and so lots of things going
0: on you are involved in many projects and i'd love to try and tap into many of those things you've just spoken about there um throughout today's chat but i'm going to hit you up with a question early uh, and you are quite an outspoken leader and professor uh, being a professor and leader in the sports medicine physiotherapy field where do you see the current state of sports physio and where do you think it's heading what about the way we we practice as physios and, and things you think maybe people are doing well and, and areas maybe we're not
1: Oh, that's that's a big question. I guess that uh, one of the other things that I I currently do or the positions I have is I'm the president of, of IFSPT, which is an the International Federation of Sports Physical Therapy. So I I do get a lot of sort of insight and overview what's going out globally uh, with sports physio. So I I would probably say that sort of for the general question of how is sports physio doing, I think it's actually doing really well i think it's it get, it's getting more and more professionalized in my opinion it's getting more and more specialized and also it's it's becoming more and more international and with that i mean that there's so many things going on uh, outside denmark where i live or outside australia or outside america and england that that if you want to keep up as a good sports physio today you really have to have a much more global view because uh the development is just going so fast at the moment that i think um being able to understand and digest and also implement research is becoming more and more um important and i probably th- that's where i think our profession is doing reasonably well that we are, we are we're quite uh we are not um part of a, a treatment concept i think sports physios are a lot stronger in Sort of uh, being a sports visual that are not related to a specific theri- therapy, a specific treatment. Uh, and I think that's really our strength. So we can sort of just take a very multidisciplinary approach where we try to sort of just provide uh, the best treatment options for our athletes. Because we don't have this sort of baggage of trying to fit everything into a specific concept.
0: You mentioned some of those research projects that you are doing. One of those ones you mentioned was a recent publication on tendinopathy in Primer. Uh, had a great team there including Karen Silbernagel. Uh, what were the outcomes here and what are some of the key takeaways?
1: I think if you're interested in tendinopathy, I think it, it's a very it's it's a really good go to resource. Also it's 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 a quite difficult read because it, it, it's sort of it's comprehensive in relation to both basic science, uh, it's across more or less, all the main tendinopathies in the body. So it's not just one tendinopathy. Often when we speak about tendinopathies, I think that the tendinopathies that come to mind are Achilles and Patella tendinopathy. But, I mean, tendinopathy is, is something we have in different regions as well. So I think in that relation, this text is very comprehensive and, and, and a good read. I also think sometimes that we're probably being a little bit too narrow in our approach. So this this uh, this text is is definitely more multidisciplinary and brings in doctors, physios, but also different sort of approaches. Everything from, as I said, basic science to clinical application. So I think that's probably it, it's a very good overview, and I would say more sort of maybe a little bit more objective in relation to where we are at the moment and, and also in relation to the things we don't know. Uh, so I think it, it's in that way it's a good read. I, I can't really take the main credit for this read. It, it was definitely uh, brought up by the, by the main author and uh, uh, some great people uh, in relation to this. So, uh, so I would definitely uh, sort of recommend it, to read it. I think there are many aspects of this paper that, that, that's very interesting to dive into. But I think a good example of where we probably, as a profession, is can be a, real, a little sort of uh, narrow-minded is is when when a, when a theory pops up that is really sort of fitting our bias or is presented by some of the people we really respect in the area. So I think a, a good example of, of that is the continuum model, uh, was, which was brought up, which is a great model by uh, Cook and Purdom, and I think this model, in some ways, I think it has become. Uh, the model the go-to model for especially all fissures but if you look in this paper you will see that there are actually been lots of theories in this area everything from sort of uh, inflammation theories to apoptosis theories to more sort of vascular neogenic theories and I think it, it's good to get a sort of more uh, whole view of this area instead of just trying just I, I guess it's easier just to think that the continuum model is just comprehensive and, and and sort of covers it all, but when you when you actually look into it, you will see that it's, it's much more complex than that. Um, so I think that for that alone, I think this, this uh, overview article is worth, definitely worth a read uh, to, to challenge your own bias in relation to tendinopathy.
0: You touched on it earlier, the, the spraino paper, looking at a low friction patch put on a shoe and how that may prevent uh, lateral ankle sprains. Um, how did this come about and what recommendations come on the back of this paper and how might it influence our practice?
1: The idea for, for this patch was actually came from a, a clinician and, a, and, a, and an athlete, a doctor, who had troubles uh, with his ankle. So he kept spraining his ankle and he had chronic ankle instability. So what he did was at some point he sort of, because he's had some kind of, you could call it, a basic understanding of, of, of um, biomechanics, he understood that a lot of the time he was he, he got caught on sort of on the outer edge of, of his shoes, and then he would roll over. So a common mechanism that we all know. So what he did was actually he, he applied some tape on the outside of his shoe <coughs> to try to um, to increase uh, or sort of decrease the friction there, so he wouldn't get caught. So this was the whole idea. So it's actually a very primitive idea, and from that he actually sort of innovated on this idea and and uh, formed the company and uh, where they actually tried to sort of come up with a product that you could apply on on, the, um, on, on your shoe and at, at some point in this process he then contacted us uh, the idea with that was to to get sort of a very robust testing in a more rigorous trial whether this was actually working or not so our role was actually to try and test this in an rct design and this is something we've done a lot so we had lots of experience with that the last part was 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 really i think new to us that we get contacts from lots of companies but they're usually just interested in us showing that their product works uh, whereas we would be very sort of saying okay we need to design it in a specific way so we could actually understand and with with robust methodology so we can actually understand whether this is promising or not. and he because he was probably because he was a doctor uh, he had this scientific understanding as well so that's why it turned out to be quite a, a good collaboration i would say it's it's not without challenge when you have a, a company and you're trying to test the product there are lots of challenges with that as well
0: does it does it help reduce ankle sprains i,
1: I think you can say that definitely it looks very promising uh from the data uh, especially in relation to the non-contact mechanism, which is also in relation to the theory about how it should work, and we you could see there that, that it actually had uh, quite a good effect and uh, and reduced up to forty percent uh, of these. So so that, that's that's very promising. Uh, it's not a it's not something I would use a, as a standalone uh, approach. Uh, they, we still have lots of evidence also to prevent secondary uh, sprains or, 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 or re sprains with, with uh, exercise and balance board and, and sort of neuromuscular um, prevention exercises. But it's certainly, I think, where it can be really helpful is especially for those who come back. And that you could also see that in our trial, if, if when they, they were actually able to come back early, uh, earlier than than usual and the, the problem with ankle sprains is that no matter what you do most people will come back early and uh, because you can uh, and what what was really interesting there was that you can then come back early but still be protected in a different way because you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't keep uh, sort of catching the flow and you, and instead uh, your shoe would just slide down and you would, you would avoid a lot of these rollovers that come very early so I think it does have um, It does have a promise in relation to being sort of an add-on you can uh, include into your Prevention strategy for these injuries. Thank you
0: sure. to Kangatech for the support of this podcast. For those who don't know, Kangatech is an Australian sports technology company originally born out of the North Melbourne Football Club in the AFL. Since releasing its second generation technology in mid 2019, the company has seen significant growth with their technology now used by some of the world's highest profile sporting teams across many codes such as the NFL, NBA, NHL, NCAA, EPL, and of course the AFL. The KT360 testing and training platform consists of a portable, adaptable, fixed frame dynamometry system that allows for accurate and reliable measurements of isolated neuromuscular strength, endurance and control. The advanced software analytics allows sport-specific profiling to understand both injury risk and guide appropriate interventions. Accompanying the KT360 software platform consists of both the testing and training modules so the athletes can work on training stimulus such as a control, strength, hypertrophy, endurance, pain modulation and also time and attention. For further information on Kangatech, head over to their website at kangatech.com, that's K-A-N-G-A-T-E-C-H or you can email them at how at kangatech.com. One of your well-known studies looked at eccentric and isometric hip adduction strength in soccer players, uh, both with and without groin pain and findings suggested that Uh, There were large eccentric hip adduction strength deficits uh, found in those players with adductor-related groin pain compared to their asymptomatic um, soccer players while isometric strength showed no real differences between groups. Um, Now, adductor strengthening has gained a lot of traction and attention, probably more so in recent years, and I'm sure it's on the back of some of your great work here. Uh, Yet a common argument to explain these findings is that the athlete may be displaying signs of pain inhibition as a reason for their reduced strength output. What's your response to this argument?
1: This kind of testing, is it is pain-provocative, uh, and you could see in both tests, so both the isometric test and the um, eccentric test, you would have similar uh, sort of mean pain response. So so without, uh, I mean, we can't say 100%, but we, you, we found that deficit despite the fact that both groups actually had similar amount of pain during testing. So I think that the deficit is not related um, to how painful the test is. It's, it's more related to, I think, an underlying deficit, uh, which uh, also fits with these players. Is that especially the, that eccentric ability is probably one of the things that, that that goes when you have a problem in an area. Probably also because this is um, quite stressful uh, for for the uh, for the tissue. So in relation to the myotendinous junction and even the the um the insertional area at the bone, of course I think this is probably where some of that weakness stems from that this is actually the test is stressing in this area as well and this is where your your ability diminishes a little bit like you also see in enhanced in injury where, where you see that that ability to uh, to essentially contract is actually diminished after a hamstring injury, whereas you won't see the, uh, a concentric problem for instance.
0: On the back of that, like, is it fair to say that adductor strengthening has become a real target in our rehabilitation program? So, um, because of that, and and some would say that a lot of our adductor overload signs can be due to just that overload in the sense, and by maybe doing extra adductor work, we are potentially just reinforcing that pattern. Is that a, is that a fair comment to what some people might argue? And, and what do you think with that?
1: The idea of, of strengthening in relation to um, groin problems, adductor problems, does not actually doesn't really stem from, from this study. It goes further back, and uh, <clears throat> it, it goes all the way back to the RCT by Pierre Helmig from 1999, where he showed that if you include uh, different exercises with a special emphasis on the adductors, you actually have a much better result in long-standing adductor-related problems uh, than if you just do what they did at the time, which was passive treatment. So I think definitely we know now that that, um, that the rehabilitation of um, groin problems, let's say that, should definitely have this active component. Uh, and it, it is likely that adductor strengthening should be part of that. So I think that's, that's probably where we have shifted uh, our uh, understanding the most. Then in two thousand I think or around two thousand and one there was a, a great trial from America also from Thailand in ice hockey where they could also show that if you increase your doctor uh, strength uh, in comparison to the abductor strength you could also really um, uh, uh, you were a, if if that imbalance was too big you were at really high risk of getting a doctor strength so it was if it was uh, less than eighty percent so if you're uh, adductors were weaker than you adductors, doctors. Um, then you would be at high risk of, of getting doctor strains, and they could also show some nice preliminary results, which was not in nice, RCT, But if you that if you change this ratio, uh, you really uh, have a good results, uh, and it looks like you have uh, uh, less injuries and re-injuries. So, so I think this is probably where this idea stems from, and then I sort of build on top of that to try to understand. Uh, uh, together with Perleming and other other great researchers try to understand sort of the mechanism behind what is the sort of, what is the strength component that is probably the most important in relation to this kind of rehab, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and this is where I think that eccentric component is, is, is really, really important, uh, especially probably in, in relation to myotendinous junction, uh, so, especially in race to the strains, but it also does play a role in, in these more sort of long-standing chronic issues, um, and it's important to get that bit right in the end as well. It doesn't mean that this is the only thing you should do with your athletes, but it's just an important uh, component, just like uh, eccentric training for, um, for uh, hamstring injuries is, is important uh, as, a, as, as an important uh, aspect of your
0: rehabilitation a lot of the time what we will see as like clinicians is all this about sort of the, the Copenhagen and abduction stuff coming through, but it probably is similar to what the Nordic is at times that, you know, no one's there suggesting that the only thing you do for a hamstring is a Nordic. There's clearly more elements to that program that, needs to come into place. And as you just mentioned there, which was my question, I'm assuming that's the same for, for a groin injury, both prevention and management. It's not just one exercise. Absolutely. So, and if, if um, I would like to
1: add a little bit to this point, because I think I will, <laughs> on my deathbed, uh, <laughs> defend uh, that some of these uh, exercises in relation to that, if you were to choose, One thing that could make a difference, and you were only to choose one thing, this is where the evidence is. I'm not saying that other exercises couldn't be better. I'm just saying we don't know. I'm not saying that, as you say, that this is the only thing you should do. If you look at the research, you will see that often these are part of of rehabilitation programs. So I think that's another important point. But I am saying that if you, from a a scientific view, view, want to argue on where to spend your time The most or get most bang for your buck as you say in australia it's 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 very very difficult to disregard these or it's very stupid to disregard these studies uh so this is so when people have that kind of um sort of information or or agenda that's where you see me react and i I will do that until somebody will show the opposite that this doesn't work then I'm prepared to uh, to change my sort of scientific-based knowledge but but this is probably where some people think that uh, the only thing I do is Nordics and Copenhagen and, Copenhagen's and uh, that, that's not correct.
0: While we are on it a recent sort of editorial came out on that talking about how it does increase seductive strength and mitigates injury risk but how much is enough? So how much is enough from our prescriptive dose and I guess how strong is strong enough?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so. I mean, this is definitely in relation to sort of trying to um, act on the risk factor. So, the eccentric strength, which we know, so is, uh, is, uh, eccentric adductor strength. Uh, so, we know that's a risk factor for getting uh, groin problems, uh, adductor problems, actually. Um, if you look at that, we know that, that uh, it, and this is also what Less's graph shows really nicely, is that just by increasing uh, repetitions and time under tension, you can actually increase strength in a sort of uh, very sort of progressive nature. And uh, you can do that fairly aggressive as well. So we're not saying that you should do a thousand reps. We're just showing how this, there's actually a nice uh, relationship there with the studies out there have to be careful this is also just an idea we, we i think you, we still need more studies here but it, it's a nice way of, of thinking about progression uh, with volume because it's very difficult in the in sort of on pitch to actually add weights and still have i think good technique and and, and proper effect of, of doing this kind of exercise it would be very impractical as well so this i think it's one of the, the first sort of Proofs also that you don't always need external um, sort of uh, weights or elastic bands or strength training machines to actually be able to have some kind of uh, strength adaptation principle. But in this case, it's more based upon volume and, and time under tension. So I think that's important. In relation to how much is enough when we talk about injuries, the only proof we have of something that could actually prevent injuries is the Norwegian study. And the graph also shows uh, how how much you need to do in, in 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 order to to sort of get that effect. So that's actually far from uh, the effect, or uh, you get the, the maximum strength effect you can get. So in the so the strength effect you get from some applying the evidence based study from your HARO is actually around ten percent, if I remember correctly. Uh, it, it's in that area. But if you sort of increase the volume. Uh, up to two to three times, you can actually get twenty to thirty percent increase in eccentric strength. So we don't know if that means that it will also relate to uh, reducing injuries even by one uh, by thirty percent more. We or fifty percent more. We don't know that, uh, and that's definitely something that needs testing um, for sure. Uh,
0: I read somewhere and I couldn't relocate or recall exactly where, but it was largely around you commenting on how the groin terminology. Injury consensus statement uh, is often misinterpreted, and, and mainly with respect to the adductor-related groin pain. And, and I guess how um, is that being used incorrectly to guide management? Um, and how should the groin injury consensus be used to guide our management?
1: Uh, this, I mean, if I, I'll try to make it as short as possible. I think so. I think the main idea for having the conference. Uh, the Doha agreement uh, uh, process and conference in 2014, was there was just too much um, confusion in in the area. And this means that there was all these sort of uh, diagnoses thrown around, different suggestions for what the pathology was, and different treatment options for each sort of suggestion of what the diagnosis and the pathology was. And so you could say, well, who cares? We don't know what the right one is, so everyone can have their own theory. I think the one who really loses out there on that is the patient. Uh, Because the patient, this is a troublesome condition if you have uh, ground problems and long-standing ground problems. And this can take, for, for some athletes, it can take years to resolve and some never resolve. So during these six months, 12 months or even two years or how long it takes for them where th- where they undergo this they can be see uh, they can see uh, 10 to 15 different uh, practitioners with 10 to 15 different opinions and it it really leaves the athlete and the patients completely um confused often insecure and with i mean obviously uh, try to look at it from their point of view these people they all disagree they ha- and and you would start to think do they actually know what they're doing um, from, a, from a patient perspective? So I think one of them, for me, the, the best thing that came out of this is if you, if, you, if you adapt sort of the DOA agreement, you also accept that this is a communicative tool uh, and it's a way that you can communicate between uh, professions. So from physio to doctor, doctor to physio, It's a way you can communicate within department, but also outside of your department. And it's a way that you can communicate to patients so they won't meet a new diagnosis every time they they shift uh, practitioner or or if they go somewhere else. And you can sort of try to provide a more structured framework where you would sort of, uh, and this needs to be a multidisciplinary framework often where you could sort of, make the athlete more secure about what's actually going on what's what's our sort of working hypothesis or and working diagnosis if you want to these are the clinical entities and what what is our sort of approach uh, and uh, what is the, the treatment plan and management plan for you in this case so I think that's probably I would say that th- that's where it's the most positive
0: yeah okay nice and and do you think at times maybe we are using that incorrectly with our management or do you think it's actually helping clinicians?
1: I think if you adapt that framework and if you understand it if you, and if you work with these patients on a regular basis, have experience, I, I would – my feeling is that this, this this is very helpful and I get lots of um, feedback and we all get lots of feedback, uh, I think, from people who have adopted it and also when we communicate. So if people – contact me from the states or from australia with a patient it's much easier for me to help them as well when we speak the same language and it's also easier for them to understand what i'm trying to say if they have adopted that language so in that sense I, it's been very positive uh, for me but it's of course it's difficult to know how active it, it is out there or where you can really go wrong in, in this is if you if you insist on discussing whether this uh, these uh, Entities are correct, or they're correct, or if uh, even if they're they're a correct diagnosis or indication of a specific pathology. I just had this discussion the other day on Twitter with, with some really good sports physicians as well, who who are now using uh, ve- or more and more advanced imaging as well. Is that if you insist on trying to to understand what the pathology is with this kind of approach, I think that. That that's a little bit of a pitfall. I don't think the the DoHA agreement won't help you there because it's it a doctor related doesn't tell you anything about the actual pathology. It it yes. just tells you that that structure is, is that some of the pain that the patient is 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 uh, complaining from is 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 related to when we um, palpate and, and test the doctor. So in some ways it could be involved in the problem. It's not the same as saying it's a doctor tendinopathy or it's it's it. Uh, but, but to, to reach that uh, sort of conclusion, you would probably need to do uh, or you would need to do extra investigation and, 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 and sort of have that as part of your clinical reasoning.
0: Uh, now, with respect to hip pain alone, so we're just moving on to the hip a little bit, you were involved in a study looking at return to sport and performance after hip arthroscope for femoral acetabular impingement. Yeah. Where are we with hip pain management and what can we be better with in relation to returning our athletes to sport for optimal function and optimal outcomes?
1: We have to be a little bit careful because it depends on the sport as well. So if you look at the sports I'm involved in, so football, ice hockey, lots of sports with changes of direction where where um, groin pain is, is, a, is, is an issue, uh, a, a prevalent problem. I think in those sports... Um, Intra-articular hip problems uh, is is are, are, are quite rare, I would say. So it's probably in the area of five to ten percent of the whole uh, of all hip and ground problems are probably intra-articular problems. So I think it's not it's not an injury that we, um, from an athlete's perspective, deal with as often as we would deal with uh, myotendinous junction problems or problems related to the insertional areas in relation to the groin and the overuse problems also in relation to the pubic bone and, and the symphysis and so on. So, I think probably 90% of that is, is overuse related to different structures in the area of, of the and insertional spots, in, uh, including the bone and the joint uh, in the area of the pubic symphysis. So, I think from that perspective, I don't think we have to make this bigger than it is, uh, but when you have an athlete with an intra-articular hip problem, they usually... You have to be a little bit aware because the prognosis is, is, not, as, is not as good. Um, so if you have a uh, con- uh, chondrolabial injury, for instance, um, or if you have and there's an underlying uh, uh, morphology there which has, could have caused this problem, uh, I think at, uh, for an athlete, uh, this, this could be a, a career th- threatening for them. Uh, so I think it, it can be quite a serious injury because it's, it, it actually ends up damaging your cartilage. And so and then you will have the same prognosis as in the knee. So we know that if you have larger cartilage lesions, your, your prognosis is worse. So I think that's probably the main thing. When you look at the study you're, you're referring to, you would see a lot of these are athletes, um, and a lot of them are also older athletes as well. So I think the, the big question is if you... When you see a younger athlete with this collateral injury and a lesion, and with a, I would say, uh, a threat to the joint, we don't. I would, I would, I think that hip arthroscopy have a role, and I've seen, uh, I think I've seen young athletes having their hip preserved in some ways by hip arthroscopy. But if you look at hip arthroscopy as a sort of a general treatment approach for everyone with with uh, hip pain and intraarticular hip pain through the lifespan, that treatment is probably less effective. And we have and we have more evidence on those plus 35 uh, athletes than we have on the young athletes. So I think we have to... It's actually a difficult topic because where this uh, hip arthroscopy intervention could benefit probably the athlete the most, we have the least evidence. So I just think we have to be a little bit careful, but certainly for sure... It's just like in the knee, and if you look at ACL as well, it's those people who have ACL injuries, and especially if they have cartilage and meniscus damage, uh, so the more damage to the knee, the, the worse their, their outcome looks, and also their return to play is, is... I mean, one thing is whether they return or not, but if you ask the hard questions like we did in, in this study, where we also ask if they uh, return to a pre-injuries level, for for instance... Then, then you would probably I don't think it would be very different if you if, if you looked in the knee and you would see probably only 20 30 percent who would be able to say afterwards that they were returning to sort of similar uh, level uh, and um, yeah so 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 it is a it, it, it's not a very good injury to get and that's where what, why we have a we have to be aware of it I hope that gives you a little bit more sort of sometimes this discussion becomes a little bit uh, uh, on nuanced uh, because we sort of when you look at these studies you have you look at these mean effects or you look at these general percentages but but when you have your patient it might be a 20 year old with with uh, with che morphology and intrachicular injury again what do you do in that case uh, and can you actually base that decision on the RCTs which mainly included plus 35 uh, years old uh, athletes. Uh, with, with with even a degenerative issue as well so okay. I think it's, that's, that's what makes it difficult and that's why we have to be and that's what that's Twitter is no use there because it, it the, the black and white sort of <laughs> discussion there is it's 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 just yeah and you we've seen it with meniscus I think it is a little bit the same is is if if you if it becomes too black and white you, you just completely uh, lose the clinical relevance uh, for for some individual patients
0: we appreciate the support from west coast health and high performance of this podcast chris and the team at west coast health and high performance bring the elite sport environment and facilities that are accessible for the general population located at the brand new center for the west coast eagles in lath lane they have plenty on on offer including expert physiotherapy care led by specialist sports physio chris perkins occupational therapy and nutrition consults, advanced testings such as a DEXA, VO2 and a Biodex for all the muscle strength testing. Uh, West Coast Health and High Performance is certainly the go-to for any sports physio performance requirements in Perth. Uh, Chris and the team are also available via Telehealth for any of our international listeners. So for more information on West Coast Health and High Performance, hit up westcoasthealth.com.au to learn more. All right, so uh, we were just talking about uh, hip and groin. Uh, bringing those two things together you developed the HAGOS um, which is a questionnaire used for hip and groin pain Uh, should should we be using this um, regularly in the management of our hip and groin pain patients?
1: Yeah so so that's a good question I think um, when we initially developed HAGOS it was actually uh, more to to, in relation to research um, and it was as part of uh, because there was no uh, tool really for these patients, so there was tools for you know patients with hip OA, and there was uh, after total hip replacement. But these questionnaires, when you uh, sort of applied them to an athlete, it was not; it was the, the questions just weren't, weren't relevant. So this was sort of the main reason why we thought that there's we need a new one that is more uh, directed towards a more active population and also to some of the sports where you have changed the direction, kicking, and stuff like that. So that was sort of the main reason. Uh, and because we were interested in trying to improve our evidence base and, and have these intervention, interventional studies, we, we needed a better outcome, simply. So that was sort of the outset. Whether you need to use it in clinical practice, I think you can, and it can provide some, some benefit or some value there. It actually has quite a lot of um, uh, individual measurement error uh, so that means that it can be a little bit difficult to track your individual patients with hagas and to see how much they, they improve or, or deteriorate. So uh, I think, f- so, so, so there you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, but I think where you can use it, and I, I do use it in the clinic, is that all these questions are sort of standardized questions that are, are good to have from the patient. So you can also just, Look at where they're sitting on different aspects of their problem, and it actually gives you, instead of having to ask all these questions yourself, you you get extra info from the patients. And then, of course, you I still use it as pre and post, but you have to be a little bit careful with small improvements because it could be just uh, within what we would call measurement error. Then we've looked a little bit whether you into there's been some suggestions that you can use it clinically also as part of uh, an early detection uh, scheme, so you can actually um, use it so whether if people start having problems, it will show up with the Hager's, uh, and then you can sort of intervene early instead of these problems becoming long-standing. And Martin Bolin in Australia has done some quite nice work in this area. Uh, I think, um, again, that's where it's useful, uh, but it's, and we also looked at whether it's actually is, is Hager's score a risk factor for getting groin injuries, and this is probably not so, because the thing with Hager's is, as soon as you start developing problems, you you, you are already on that continuum uh, for an injury. So it means it's if you have to do that right, you actually have to take those players out who already have the injury, and then it does. So it doesn't really make sense that you would use Hager's to predict future injury, but it's a very very good tool to sort of understand the current condition and if there's problems. So it, it's probably sitting more in the monitoring space than in the actual prediction of what's going to happen space. And, and we know prediction is hard anyway. So I think some of those questions are really helpful in, in, in as an early indicator of problems. Also, sometimes when players wouldn't tell you that they have an actual run problem, but they might say that they have a little bit of problems with kicking or a little bit of problems with the change directions, and you would pick that up. So I think in that sense, it's quite useful. But uh, we have quite a few data coming out now as a, as a sort of a, a predictor it's not
0: very useful, actually. For those uh, listening in, you, you, we always talk about Nordic and hamstrings, uh, I'm sure, with you, but I feel like that's been pretty well covered in other topics, so we're not going to really touch on that uh, too much today or, in fact, at all, unless you, there's anything really pressing that you wanted to add to um, recent comments and things of that nature. I think the, the one thing
1: I would always I try to add now every time is the misunderstanding of, of these interventions being um, you, we often get uh, the criticism that you can't prevent this with only one in, uh, one exercise. That would be ridiculous. Uh, I think I think the, the sort of what I would like to plant in people's head is that that what we've actually done now, both with the Nordics and also with Copenhagen, is that you're actually we're actually intervening in a very complex environment in an RCT where we, this is the only thing we're adding to one group and the other group just do as usual. So, that means that they are playing football, for instance, uh, four or five times a week. They're doing other kind of strength training regimes. They might even do other kind of uh, preventative uh, um, uh, measures. So, so what we're doing with these studies is, on top of that, we're adding a five-minute or ten-minute intervention at the most. And when you do that, that actually makes a difference. So, I think those people who then say, well, but you you cannot prevent by just doing one exercise. I would totally, uh, that's totally true. So if you have like the COVID nineteen situation now, and you and you um your athletes haven't done anything for six months or six weeks, sorry, and they come back, and you think you can prevent uh, uh, hamstring injuries or groin injuries by just doing uh, Copenhagen or, or Nordics, uh, nothing else, I think you would fail miserably. But if if, it, if 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 you add this to your normal st- uh, training regime and, and you do it well and you also dose it well, these are the the two ones that come up and actually ha- has an effect. The same with the FIFA 11+. Uh, so I think what this is, I think this is a very poor understanding when you're trying to take this out and say it's only uh, what they're looking at is just one exercise. It's actually one exercise added to a uh, lots of other stuff that these clubs and athletes are doing. Um, so I think that this is an important point. Um, and I, I can't make this point often enough because it, it keeps getting misinterpreted,
0: in, in, in my opinion. If, if I had one, maximum two of my key things that I'll be looking at to add into an a already-rounded program for ACL injury prevention, what would it be?
1: Um,
0: <laughs> so I'm the expert of all injuries now. I like that. Um,
1: I, I would say, so if you want to look in into... ACL injury prevention. There are, there's lots of, of, of course, studies done in that area, and and uh, neuromuscular exercise being one of those who can reduce uh, ACL injuries. I what I think, one study I would really read if if I was going into this area is actually uh, the study by Greta Mugelboost Mim- where they, uh, the one where she looks at what happens over a 10-year period with ACL injuries in Norwegian handball. And what why this study is so interesting and why this work is completely uh, pioneer work, in my opinion, is that uh, what they did was that they applied this neuromuscular exercise approach as prevention, and uh, it worked. And just, and I think it was, and as soon as they stopped with the intervention, went out of the clubs and didn't do anything more, the injuries came back and they couldn't understand why until they found out that these, of course, these exercises were, were not implemented at all. So I think, uh, and then what Creative Mückebus then did, which I think is fantastic. Then she thought, this is, this is just. I've spent all my life in trying to develop, or all my professional life developing this. We need to do a better job of, of the implementation. And then she actually did that. So they went back in, and, and only had a focus on implementation and uh, implementation. And what they could show was then at, it was working as soon as they did that. So I think the if I were to have one. I wouldn't say it's one exercise, one exercise regime, but it's to be 100% consistent and to get as much adherence and compliance that you can get in an elite environment. And that means that you can't go in and do things once. It's actually a whole shift in the way we train, exercise, uh, or whatever that we have to change. And that is something that's going to take a long time to get these things implemented. Uh, it it needs to be integrated in the same way as stretching was integrated in the 80s that everyone did it it didn't work but everyone did it, it, it a new uh, muscular exercise needs to be a, a sort of an integral integrated part of what we do including education and all other stuff that you need to know about ACL injuries because there's lots of stuff that ap- uh, an exercise program can't prevent so there's lots of family history involved, so that's that, that could be a main problem. You could be a, a very high risk if you have family history. There's something in relation to your age group, uh, young girls in particular. You need to be particular aware of these uh, these athletes. Are, I'm sure there's something in relation to surface. Still, we don't understand you. You, if you think about the sprain study, I think there is a, a friction problem as well uh that we might be able to understand better if we look at it and there's certainly something in relation to performance and technique that we need to address much more so so if we could have a like a, a whole approach for this and be consistent in this and keep pushing that message and keep sort of making change out there in the real world that would be my main message and this is why it's so difficult um, to get um, to get resources that we are we just, we're just doing intervention studies at the moment. We look at the results, we think, oh, great, and then nothing else happens. So we need sort of to take the next step into uh, talking with stakeholders, get things implemented. And I think that it's a pretty big task. <laughs> uh,
0: that's that's the sort of good outcome, I guess, leading towards in, in that question. And, you know, same with both those who have uh, injured their ACL in the past. It's an ongoing thing that they just need to keep working on and keep working on. And there is some. Um, there's a, a, a bit of a crew in Melbourne out of La Trobe, so led by, I think, Brooke Patterson doing some stuff where they're trying to integrate that into the women's football in, in Melbourne and make it commonplace. So that's hopefully seeing some of that research translate into, um, you know, daily life for the footballers. And we, and we need to
1: make it, and I think that that's exactly what they're trying to do, is that we need to make it more sustainable. Uh, so it's something that is, it's, it just needs to be integrated. And one of my big sort of... Um, what you call things that I used to, I think is important to emphasize is that the, the reason why we need to start, start it at an early age is not so much that we need to prevent these injuries from uh, from their 10, 11 because they don't get it at 10, 11, but they, it needs to be an integral part of becoming a good athlete is that injury prevention and uh, is is part of that because if 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 we don't learn them early, then learning them when they already have the problem is is, is just too late. So it's 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 the way we structure this that just needs to be much more ingrained in everything we do surrounding uh, exercise
0: and sport, really. All right. Well, one final, final one for me, uh, Christian. And, and there's certainly or uh, well, one thing we pride ourselves on here at the, the Sports Map is delivering interactive CPD courses and workshops, um, and trying our best to I guess transfer the skill from uh, you know the, the practitioner or, or presenter and clinician to the attendee that actually influences the way they practice. And I know uh, some of your work with your courses and is much the same. And a recent warm-up in BJSM talks about the importance of this and how you and your team at, at uh, WCSPT are influencing and, and pushing things in the same way. Um, the question here is: How do you think are the best ways to get uh, the best out of our learnings when we are attending courses and conferences?
1: Yeah. The, so the traditional way of of being a researcher, for instance, and going on uh, research conferences, uh, I think is is, is is has value for researchers. But I think a lot of these conferences probably has less value for clinicians. Uh, and I think, and that's also why sometimes you will see that many clinicians won't. It's also a little bit about finances. Where would you spend your CPD uh, money, really? Uh, so I think there is a little bit of a of a of a. Probably between uh, scientific conferences and CBD, like what you're doing, or what uh, what you can. I mean, you can get CBD everywhere now online, and you can. Uh, so I think, in in my view, I think I would like the, uh, the the best of both worlds to meet. I think when you, I think we need more um, gatherings or conferences where you. I think it's important to meet still in person, we'll see how that goes in the future, but but also where you, and it's very important, you get everyone there, but I think you actually also need the athletes there, and you won't see that on many conferences, you would see the odd athlete now being dragged up on stage and tell their story, but I think, and but you need coaches, you need athletes, because at the end of the day, if, if, if we want to, as I said, have this as, as an uh, ingrained part of, of, of our uh, management education we need to have more sort of uh, we, we need to have daily weekly conversations with these people instead of coming in from the outside and say oh now we think you do, need to do this and then go away again and then come back and find out they didn't uh, agree with us so i think we need to have more sort of when we, when we say multidisciplinary we probably also need to it, it needs to be also across patients coaches uh, and so forth and i think that's not what we're going to do for the for the for the world conference next time. But it, it, what we're going to do there is is have a more focus on on workshops with with different physios from different countries, and we will also have some some uh, real life cases uh, w- with patients. But to to try to promote, so we would have a more sci- scientific session, but we will always have a workshop related to that session. So we're sort of slowly maybe going in that direction. But it, I think it's also a matter of trying to see if we can make it work and it needs to be interesting enough also for clinicians to to come to the event i think if if, if it shows that people will not come to the event it's because you're not doing it right so hopefully uh, we can get people to come to this event and it's been i would say from so the world Conference conferences sports physical therapy has probably been the, one of the largest successes of the federation i'm president of is because it's actually been able to to gather people, uh, up to a 1,000 people from all over the, the globe. So in that sense, I think we're trying to sort of provide, again, a more global approach, a more global
0: um, community, if you want.
1: We, we need to think
0: outside our own circles more. Mate, a really interesting chat and I, something, I, as I mentioned at the start, was really keen to get you on and actually have a good chat and meet you in person. But I found it a really interesting chat and learnt a lot and hope others did as well. Uh, thank you for that. All right. Well, thanks very much, Kristen. And I'm sure people will uh, continue to hear some great things from you and, and see some of your great work. So I appreciate your time. No problem.